morning, everyone. Uh, as Pastor Stephen mentioned, uh, my name is Josh Drake. I'm an elder here at Forest Gate. Um, I sort of suspect had Matt not gotten, or had Matt not already scheduled me to preach for today, and had he gotten sick, he probably would have called me um, as it is. I only have a couple hundred sermons lying around at home uh, ready to preach. I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't have had to pull the sort of Saturday night emergency uh, that Stephen would have. Um, prior to coming here to Forest Gate in 2018, uh, I'd served as a uh, pastor in rural Vermont uh, doing church revitalization and college ministry. Uh, I graduated from RTS, uh, the same place as Matt had um, as well. Uh, so coming here and, and bringing the word to you this morning uh, isn't a foreign task for me. Uh, but before we look here at the book of Revelation, let's all pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, as we open your word, uh, Lord, as you speak to us, give us ears to hear. Lord, give us hearts to understand. Move in us to keep it. Move in me to proclaim it faithfully. Lord, that you would be glorified and that we would be blessed in Jesus Christ, in whose name that we pray. Amen. Suffering is standard. Not going to bury the lead. Three simple words for this morning. Suffering is standard. In Christ. Here in the book of Revelation, the, the opening of the book, uh, if you've ever read through it, is probably the part that you understand. Uh, there's seven letters to seven churches on what's now the, the coast of Turkey, uh, written by Christ through the Apostle John, addressing their individual circumstances, what's going on in their communities, the challenges that they're facing. But it's also very clear from the book that what's written to these churches is also intended for the body of Christ as a whole. For them 2,000 years ago, as well as for us today. And so as Matt's had me preach occasionally over the last few years, I've been sort of methodically going through here. And so today we're in Revelation chapter 2. Uh, verses 8 through 11, uh, the letter to the church in Smyrna. So if you'd turn with me uh, in your Bibles, uh, I'll read now verses 8 through 11. Hear now the word of the Lord. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear to hear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. This is the word of the Lord. Suffering is standard. That's not an easy message. It realistically wouldn't have been an easy message to the folks in Smyrna as well. Now the reality of this is it actually gives us a direct prediction of what happens in the life of the church. There's very little mystery about what goes on here. It's what we're expecting after all. In chapter 1 and verse 18 as it lays out and gives us an idea 
here of what it is that Revelation is. It makes itself clear. It's a symbolic, apocalyptic prophecy, and then goes on to tell us that the audience that received these initial letters would have understood exactly what the Lord and what John were writing about. But it was always intended to be practical. This is a letter to this church in Smyrna that's intended to address the practical needs that they are facing in their day-to-day lives as Christians. In verse 3 of the book, it says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. It's good for all of us today. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. For the time is near. Read, hear, keep. Receive a blessing. It's about as practical as you can get from a book that most of us think of as filled with signs and wonders and about as confusing things as you can get. So what's the situation here then in Smyrna? What's what's the background of what's going on and what eventually will happen? Well, of all these seven churches in these seven cities, this is probably one of the two smallest in size. The funny thing is, it's one of the two listed where there's no problems in the church. You're not going to find the Lord speaking them and saying, well, you're doing great at this, but I have this one thing against you. It's the smallest, it's the most challenged, and yet it appears to be the most faithful. Now, the city where these Christians are residing in on the coast of modern-day Turkey, what would have been part of ancient Greece and then eventually Rome, had a long history of loyalty culturally, politically, to the Roman Empire. In some ways, what we would think of as emperor worship, offering sacrifices and incense to the deified Caesar of the Roman Empire, more or less started in this town. This was the cultural headquarters for emperor worship. Now, because of the way that the Romans went about conquering and incorporating foreign religions into their empire, the Jews had a long exemption from being required to do emperor sacrifices. For the most part, they were allowed to go about, abstain from that, and yet still be considered loyal subjects of the empire. Now that all changed though in 70 AD when the Jews in Israel revolted and the result was the Romans sent in an army, captured all of Israel and Judea and knocked down the temple and most of Jerusalem to its base. And following that military campaign, the Jews began to excommunicate Christians from their synagogues all over the empire. Christians saw themselves as still part of the people of God, of Israel, in that way. There was a continuity for many decades. But in that, the Christians lost their protected religious status. They were now a novel, a new religion. I suspect the Romans might have called them new age of some sorts. And those were illegal. They were fine if you worshipped if you worshipped Isis, 
They were fine. Whoever you worshipped, as long as you could give a record that that had been going on for generations and centuries beforehand. And then they'd figure out how to make everything the same and just sort of identify that one with Jupiter or Saturn or pick your planet, basically. But if you decided to come up with something new, there was concerns that you were going to undermine the authority of the religion and the empire. And slowly but surely, in Smyrna as well as we know elsewhere, Christians became actively accused of being fomenters of insurrection as they refused to worship and offer sacrifices to Caesar as those inventing new religions. And the very things that this letter speaks of, that some would be thrown into prison and tested, face tribulations, and even some unto death, is exactly what happens. In the life of the early church, we have the account of one of the leaders of the church of Smyrna, one of the early apostolic fathers, those who, a generation of Christians who came right after the authors of the New Testament, Polycarp. I don't think I've ever met anyone with the first or last name of Polycarp. But he, as the leader of the church here, was accused of not being of the synagogue of the Jews, but of helping establish and lead a new religion. He was put on trial and eventually burned at the stake. Now, as it turns out, he was actually a disciple of John. He knew John personally during his life. This letter to the church in Smyrna wouldn't have just been some sort of general epistle to him or part of the book of Revelation. It would have meant something very clearly where a mentor, a spiritual leader, would have been bringing to him and making him aware of what he was going to face. And it seems to be clear in the account of his speeches at his martyrdom, at his death, that he was intimately aware of the words of Revelation 2, 8 through 11. So why in the world were the Romans concerned about what Polycarp and this church in Smyrna were even putting out there? Why in the world were they concerned about this new religion? What was the challenge that it posed that would lead to the suffering of this church. Well, the cause of this suffering is Jesus Christ, who, as we read in verse 8, declares himself the first and the last who died and came to life, and who the book introduces earlier on in chapter 1 and verses 4 through 8. Him who is and who was and who is to come from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings on earth, him who loves us and who has freed us from our sin by his blood and made us a kingdom and priests to his God and Father, the one who's coming on the clouds and who every eye will see, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. The one who declares himself in verse 8 to say that I am the Alpha and the Omega, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. The cause is who Jesus 
claims himself to be, who Christ is presented as being in the very words of the book of Revelation. That the message that the church is proclaiming in Smyrna is a message of Jesus Christ, the only way to salvation and eternal joy, a proclamation that all are wicked and evil in their hearts by sin. After all, the the very words of Christ in John's gospel, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The words of Paul to the church in the capital city of Rome, for all have sinned and fall short to the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. Now, why would the Romans have a problem with this? They're all aware that there's some sort of shortcoming. After all, that's why they're going to temples offering sacrifices. But there's something different in what's being proclaimed here. They're not looking upon Christ, on Jesus, as some sort of cute Christmas baby or wise guru talking about love. I think that's about what we're going to get in the next six to eight weeks in terms of the presentation of Christ. No, it's bringing up the, the most sensitive subject of all here, our guilt. A universal internal knowledge of guilt, something that the book of Romans in 120 tells us that the world knows that God exists and has a universal sense of righteousness and our shortcoming. The world knows that things are rotten. The emperor could quote Hamlet a couple centuries early and say there's something rotten in the state of Rome and the state of our hearts. And appropriately, the world seeks a way to make that right. It goes about through penance, great acts of devotion, of faithfulness, to whoever might be the Almighty, sacrifices and ways to seek approval. But because we know we can't attain that, the world seeks to suppress the truth and to avoid it. It's why we crave affirmation. We like it when our social media posts get likes and retweets and all that stuff. It's why mostly the world finds declarations about sin and condemnation unacceptable. It's a lot easier for us if we can remove the judgment of God from our culture and everyday life, trying to escape that standard of righteousness. Reality is, though, the the guilt and the shortcoming still follows through with it. So often we choose to entertain ourselves to death to distract ourselves from what's really going on. We try and change the standards, suppress the truth, build into our hearts and the world the things that we actually realize we can't escape. We want to be the king of our own castle, the hero of our own personal narrative, as it were. But that hero hates Jesus. Because that hero recognizes that in him, 
our guilt is exposed. It recognizes that in the good news of Jesus Christ, there's actually a stumbling block. Because the world seeks to reject the option of being rescued by a Savior. We see the wonder naturally in the sword of truth and the shield of virtue slaying the dragon and rescuing the helpless bound to a curse of death. But when we see that and when it echoes in our hearts and our minds, our reaction is we want to be the hero. And if we can't be the one rescuing, and we need to save ourselves to go the distance, to be true to myself, to find the inner strength to do the next right thing, I could probably go on for another 50 Disney movies about what their main thesis is at the end. There is something in there that echoes deeply with us. It echoes a truth and whispers a lie. And it's when that lie is exposed that those who follow Christ will face suffering. Because following the reality of who Christ is and who he claims us to be in sin means that we live in tension with the world. For Jesus to proclaim himself to be the first and the last who came and died and then was risen to life, is placing himself not in any subtle way, but boldly and squarely in front of the life and the worship of the citizens and the culture of Smyrna and in conflict with the emperor. It's not wiggling its way around. It's exposing what they're doing as being an object of Satan. And so in Smyrna, that very proclamation results in opposition from the world. And, and what does it say happens here? What are their tribulations that they suffer? The opposition to Jesus and those who follow him causes economic hardship. I know your poverty. We're not talking some sort of metaphorical dynamic here. We are talking true poverty. In Smyrna, in most of the Roman world, if you had a skill, you would have been a part of, essentially, a, a union, a trade guild at that point, most of whom would have had their own specific god and specific form of worship. If you were an electrician... You were going out, and part of your task of being able to be a part of that guild and get a job meant you were offering sacrifices to the gods of electricity. And if you didn't, you're not joining the guild, you're not getting work. You would have lost access to work, cultural boycotts, fines, and for some, eventually, even here as it speaks, tribulation unto death. The historical account is that wasn't for everyone. It was generally the leaders of the churches who would be accused for what they proclaimed from the word of God as being the truth. Imprisoned not for punishment, 
but as a holding cell waiting eventual execution. Now the question for all of us as well should be, should that come as a surprise? That suffering is standard in Christ. When the church in Smyrna receives this letter being circulated by their, their former friend in John, are they reading this and then discovering, wow, I was not expecting that being a Christian was going to result in me losing my job, facing opposition, and watching the men and women that I consider faithful leaders in the church being pointed out and being dragged off by Roman soldiers? Was Polycarp eventually here surprised by the words of the Lord here and what happened? Well, no. Matthew 5, the words of Christ. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In John's gospel in chapter 16, I've said the things to you that in me you may have peace, but in the world you will have tribulation. In Romans 8, we're heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him. In Hebrews 11, verse 36 and following, others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. First Peter 4, also written to the coasts of Turkey and beyond. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Suffering is standard in Christ. Well, what are the implications for us then, today? What are the implications for the church in Smyrna? Well, uncomfortably, if you're at peace and friendly with the world and expect that to be more normal, be warned that that is probably an area of temptation or a deception of the devil. Christ himself in John's gospel declares, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. It's a question of where we belong, to whom we belong. The implication is, if we were in Smyrna or in Colorado Springs, we should expect difficulty in a fallen world. Challenges in parenting, marriages, aging, death. The battle of sanctification as we put the old man to death and see the new man in Christ rise to life the vestiges of a sinful world. But what we should also expect is what most of us here in the United States don't experience. Direct and real suffering for the sake of Christ. 
Because the good news of Jesus is said to be a stumbling block and the stench of death to those who are opposed to Christ as Lord and Savior. Now, I'll be honest, if you feel down and disappointed by that message, frustrated and concerned, I don't necessarily blame you. But what it should bring to all of our attention is the question of where is our treasure? Where is our hope? We should be pretty down and disappointed if our highest goal is peace and prosperity and the life in this world. But the truth of the gospel is we're called to something greater in Christ. The reality is that the church, we, Forest Gate and beyond, are not of this world and age if we are in Christ. We're aliens of a new heaven and a new earthly kingdom. Because in Christ is the paradise of God coming to swallow up the barren wasteland outside the garden. The question is, where is our treasure in that? Well, how do we respond to being aware of that? Faithful hope without fear is what Christ commands our brothers and sisters 2,000 years ago. Because suffering is standard in Christ but it leads into the presence of our Lord in hope. Back in John 16, he tells us as well, take heart, I have overcome the world. In Romans 8, it also tells us, for I consider that the sufferings of this present age are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. In 2 Corinthians 4, it reminds us that for this Light and momentary suffering is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. The New Testament never views this suffering for the brothers and sisters of Christ in Smyrna as a problem or a tragedy. Because it's coming about as a result of our union with Christ and not our union with this world. It means Christians can face those trials of many kinds, can face the tribulations, the suffering, the persecution, that for the most part has defined faithful believers in Christ for the last 2,000 years. Go and buy a copy of Fox's Book of Martyrs. We can face it through the lens of our union with Christ. Because after all, it's not the political authority who's the first and the last. It's Christ. It's Jesus who's the Lord of Isaiah 44 and 48 who controls history. It's the Lord who is the one who died and came to life, having defeated and gained mastery and control over death. After all, the, the faithful one, the victor, will be given a crown of life and not hurt by the second death, the, the last judgment. And so the question then becomes the key factor 
Who is our Lord and what is our treasure? What are we expecting to endure as those who belong to Christ or perhaps as those who belong to the world? If Christ is who he has presented himself to be in Revelation 1 and 2 to this church here, if he is all-powerful, all-wise, all-knowing, all-loving Lord of sovereign of all creation, then this has a purpose. It means there can actually be good outcomes assured to us. It means we are safe in the hands of the one who upholds the universe. And Lord willing, with it, our perspective changes. Because our treasure, the thing that we value most, is now a heavenly kingdom and the presence of the Lord. YOLO and FOMO don't apply to eternity. You can't miss out. You don't just lose once. It's not because you've lost everything. It's because in Christ, you now have nothing to fear, to lose. Those witnesses in Hebrews 11 that suffered all those things for the sake of Christ, rejoiced in the promise knowing the fulfillment was coming, knowing that there would be life a new creation and eternity in New Jerusalem. And so for us, we're called, quite simply, therefore, to be faithful. To be faithful and overcome and persevere in Christ, as it tells us to be. In Smyrna, the spiritually rich in Christ are poor in silver and gold, but they're more than conquerors. Their treasure was in their Lord and Savior and in the pearly gates in the streets of gold to come down. It means we're called to face trials well, to present a faithful and true witness of Christ's love, power, and victory. But it does mean, as believers, we need to not be shocked when the world is opposed to the good news and the standards of Christ. So let us be faithful in the good work and the hard suffering which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In Christ, let us faithfully conquer, knowing we will not be hurt by the second death, but will receive the crown of life. Let us cast off the world in whatever hinders and look to the Alpha and the Omega, the founder and perfecter of our faith, that we might share in his sufferings so that we might know him and the power of his resurrection. Suffering is standard in Christ, but it leads into the presence of our Lord. That's the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. So he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says and keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are a people accustomed to comfort. Warm houses, warm cars, good food, and peace and prosperity with the world around us. Lord, help us recognize the blessings and the abnormality of that. And be fitted to be prepared to be faithful when we may face opposition. 
Lord, let us pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world who face those challenges daily. And Lord, turn our hearts not from the the temptations and the delicacies of this world, the things that moth and rust may destroy. But Lord, as you have renewed us in your spirit, change our hearts, that our value, our treasure, our trust would be fully and absolutely in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior in whom we pray. Amen.